Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 547th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Christopher Booker, Assistant Professor of Practice, Internship Coordinator, and Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And we're going to be talking about stare decisis, U.S. versus Osawa and U.S. versus Thind. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. To begin with, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yep, we are very excited. So the first segment here is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is just to give our listeners some background information on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what stare decisis is? Well, sure. Um, every introductory level course on the legal system, courts, criminal justice, talks about the difference between common law and statutory law. Uh, common law is based on precedence, that, that Latin phrase, stare decisis, which basically means let what already has been decided, uh, maintain what already has been decided and don't alter that which has been established. This uh, is, is the conventional wisdom of, of how the court works. Uh, it makes the court uh, more predictable, so citizens can know, understand uh, what the court is going to do in certain cases. It makes the court reliable. Uh, it helps the court be more efficient because you don't have to go through all of the circumstances and, and all of the uh, uh, facets of each and every case. You know, a lot of cases that come before the court are similar. So if we have similar cases and we decide them similar, it becomes more efficient and allows, uh, allows there to be equality, all of which gives more legitimacy to the court. And the court relies on legitimacy. Um, but there are a few examples, uh, like the 1922 case of uh, Japanese businessman Takao Ozawa, who petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for naturalization. He wanted to be a U.S. citizen. He did everything he could to become an American. He attended the University of California at Berkeley. He moved to Hawaii, started a family. The problem was that Japanese farmers were not allowed to own or lease land, and Japanese immigrants did not have full protection of the law. So Mr. Rosalba presented evidence that his skin was just as white as any white person's skin, and he argued that race shouldn't matter for citizenship. He argued that what really mattered was what a person believed in their heart, and he said that he truly believed in American values. The Supreme Court ruled against Mr. Ozawa and said that according to the science of the day uh, in, in 1922, uh, Mr. Ozawa was not Caucasian and therefore could not be an American citizen. Only Caucasians could be American citizens, according to the court at the time. They said he was of the Mongolian race, according to the science. Now, according to the principle of stare decisis, similar cases should be decided similarly. And three months after the Ozawa case, uh, a South Asian immigrant, Bhagat Singh Thind, who had, uh, was a U.S. Army veteran, 
He petitioned for citizenship, but he had listened carefully to the arguments presented in the Ozawa case. And Mr. Finn, according to the science of the time, was Caucasian. South Asians are Caucasian under the racial classification system used at that time. So he made the argument that according to science, he was Caucasian and therefore should be eligible for United States citizenship. The court had already made a ruling based on the best-known science at the time, so that created a bit of a problem for them. Uh, But they did not rely, in this case, three months after they had just ruled that Mr. Ozawa was not white scientifically. In this case, the thin case, they applied a different standard. What the court said in the thin case was that what is white is subjectively understood according to the common white man. Uh, Associate Supreme Court Justice George Sutherland wrote in the ruling, it may be true that the blonde Scandinavian and the brown Hindu have a common ancestor in the dim reaches of antiquity, but the average man knows perfectly well that there are unmistakable and profound differences between them today. Never mind the fact that Mr. Thind was not Hindu, he was actually Sikh. Uh, that's what the ruling was at the time, that he could not be white because the average white person would not recognize him as white, and therefore he was not invited into uh, white society. Okay. definitely contradicts the principle of precedent that we talk so much about, that every uh, every intro level course discusses so much. All right. So we have a lot to unpack there. Uh, and so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show and is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Christopher Booker, Assistant Professor of Practice, Internship Coordinator in Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And we're talking about stare decisis, U.S. versus Ozawa and U.S. versus Thind. Our history buffs for today are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, start us off. Chris, um, full disclosure, I am a law school dropout, so uh, I could be a little rusty on this. But uh, after the Civil War, the Civil War Amendment 13, 14, 15 gave uh, non-white, we call them slaves, uh, citizenship. How did the Supreme Court and the commentary after these two cases uh, 
balance those decisions with the fact that the slaves were given citizenship uh, 60 years before? Well, I'm uh, not altogether certain that they took that into consideration at all. Apparently. Uh, (laughs) Neither of these gentlemen were actually born in the United States. Both of them were immigrants. So uh, the provision that anyone born in the United States is a U.S. citizen did not apply to them. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if they took those into consideration at all. I'm looking at the the fact that they were defining whiteness uh, that we could uh, recognize somebody in a crowd as being white. Therefore, a common, a reasonable person would assume that they're uh, white as opposed if they're Sikh or Japanese, um, you know, they, they, what is a hook on those cases is what is whiteness. Right. And, uh, you know, whiteness is a concept that is socially constructed, right? Yes. There, there, there is no empirical biological evidence to justify the division of human beings into racial categories in any way, white, black, Asian, uh, Native American, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and, you know, we make a big difference. Uh, we make a big deal about the difference between race and ethnicity. Certainly there are ethnic differences. Uh, people all over the world have their various cultures that they come from, but race is not justifiable. Uh, scientifically speaking in any way, yet it exists. We look at people, and, and one of the things that we ascertain about an individual when we're looking at them is what race are they? And many people fit neatly into the racial categories that we have created, uh, but then if you really look at it, there are a number of people out there that don't fit neatly into any racial category. Um, I asked my students about various celebrities that we know of who uh, are somewhat ambiguous in their in their racial category. And sometimes I have students in class who are of, of mixed race or whatever the case may be. And and sometimes I ask people, you know, what what race are you um, in the discussion about race as just as examples of how race is socially constructed. It has real consequences for people even though it's not real in any uh, biological or scientific sense. Okay, Terry. Yeah, Chris, you mentioned um, that um, Bhagat Singh Thin was not born in America, um, and yet he lived in America for a long time. Um, My understanding was that he actually served in the U.S. Army. Can you give us a little bit more background information about him, and if he was an American citizen, how was he able to serve in the military? Well, uh, I'm not altogether well-versed on his history before that, but I know that citizenship is not a requirement to serve in the United States military. Uh, they will allow people to sign up um, no, matter, no matter where they're from uh, because you know, military service is dangerous. So why not allow people who are not uh, U.S. citizens to take that risk uh, on behalf of the United States. Chris, I'm interested in the the idea that 
that whiteness equates to citizenship. Um, I see that nowhere in the Constitution. So when did that concept come into play? And then can you give us a little bit of information about what's going on in terms of race and politics and social um, constructs in the 1920s? Because this certainly sounds like a, a set of court decisions that were anchored very much in the time. Oh, certainly. There was, in the Constitution, the Three-Fifths Compromise, which argued that uh, slaves should, for purposes of allotting seats in the House of Representatives, that slaves would count as three-fifths of a white person. So, uh, you know, there there is that provision in the Constitution. Um can you can you repeat the question again for me? I think I lost track of exactly what you were asking. Yeah, I, I mean, at least the first part of the question was so. So when did did citizenship become tied to whiteness explicitly? Because it sounds to me like the court is very much saying that there is a law or a precedent that considers citizenship to be tied to a particular race. I, you know, it just seems to me like there's no hard and fast concept in in the constitution so that has to have developed over time and become enshrined either by previous court cases or or by just sort of um an organic kind of assumption on the part of judges that this is how it works right well thomas jefferson who we all know credit with writing the declaration of independence also wrote a larger volume uh, called Notes on the State of Virginia, in which he started establishing these various racial categories. Race did not exist as a concept, really, uh, when Europeans first came to the North American continent, which was not the United States until 1776. Um, It was uh, before then... Uh, the classification was basically, are you Christian or not? If you're Christian, then you were considered part of of European society. Race as a concept didn't play into it. But with the colonization of the United States um, and the importation of slaves from Africa uh, to work the plantations uh, in the colonies, that's when skin color really began to be a much more of a uh, of a criteria that people looked at and the the science of race developed uh, over time from there there was a uh, you know and, and scientists in uh, in America scientists in England scientists in France were all looking at uh, skin color um, and, and racial categories. One of the things that they looked at was the uh, uh, size of a person's skull and size of a person's brain. Uh, the, the assumption there being that whoever has the biggest brain is smarter. Well, the, uh, the English scientists uh, studied all the various skulls very carefully and decided that Englishmen had the biggest brains and were therefore the smartest. The French scientists, they looked at all the skulls, and they decided that Frenchmen had the biggest brains and the biggest science. And, of course, American scientists, they looked at all of their skulls, and they decided that Americans had the biggest brain 
and 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 we're the smartest individuals. So it certainly seems like the science was influenced by whatever country people happen to be living in. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so the second part of my question was just give us a sense of because because society does influence what's going on in the 1920s. What What's the political and social climate in which these cases are taking place? Oh, well, the 1920s is certainly the heart of the Jim Crow era. Um, the slaves had been freed, and there was the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, where it seemed like for a short period of time, there was a hope that uh, the former slaves would be treated as equals. Uh, several former slaves were elected to Congress. Um, but with, uh, when Reconstruction uh, was taken off the table, uh, certainly, and, and there was a lot of violence. Um, there, were, there were various stories from places in, in Louisiana and, and other places around the South where uh, African Americans, the former slaves who had made something of their lives, where violence was used to uh, uh, to to put push that down, uh, to stifle the progress that they had made. Um, we're we're all familiar with uh, 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 the the riots, the race riots in Oklahoma. Um, there was uh, Rosewood in Florida where uh, white people just basically eliminated African-American communities, and there was never any accountability or, or, uh, or compensation for that. Rick. Chris, did uh, Hozawa or Tind ever get U.S. citizenship? Uh, my best understanding is that they were both denied citizenship uh, for very different reasons, and of course, the Supreme Court. There is no court. There's nowhere to appeal after the Supreme Court makes their decision. Sure, so, sure. Terry. Yeah, Chris. So when we talk about um, stare decisis, making decisions in alignment with a previous court's decision, when is that not applied? Um, well, the the court system uh, interprets the law. Uh, there's common law which is based on precedent and prior decisions. There's also statutory law. Statutory law is the law that's created, crafted, passed by uh, the legislative branch, either at the state or the federal level. So if there's a case that hinges on statutory law, then common law wouldn't really come into it. And of course, while the courts are bound by precedent, legislatures can do whatever they want. They're not bound by precedent. If they want to change a law, uh, if, if they want to criminalize certain behaviors or legalize certain behaviors, they can do that without regard to what's been decided before. So, Chris, I'm, I'm sort of obviously one of the reasons that, that uh, this concept caught our eye is that we've had uh, a great hue and cry and a great debate uh, over the last uh, handful of years um, around the current Supreme Court's decisions to alter, to, to strike down Roe v. Wade, to um, change the way um, gun control or, or gun legislation is looked at. And the argument the court has used for eliminating 50-plus years of 
precedent is that the original decisions were incorrect. They were flawed. They were based on a a wrong interpretation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think that's what Terry's sort of trying to, to get at is this idea of, you know, when does the court feel that it is justified to um, to ignore precedent and and basically reset um, the the standard? I do not have a good explanation for many of the decisions handed down by the Supreme Court. Um, many of them seem to fly in the face of the conventional wisdom and what we've always been told. I suppose if you pressed a Supreme Court justice on an issue, um, they might have some explanation for that. But, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of decisions that just, that just don't make sense. Um, and, you know, we don't really – one of the things about the Supreme Court is that we don't really – ever have the option of uh, 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 in, engaging in a dialogue with them about why they made this ruling or that ruling. Um, they're not responsive to citizens the same way that our elected representatives and senators are. So, you know, I think it's very fair for citizens to look at the Supreme Court decisions and say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's a, a, an obviously flawed ruling. Um, but what can we do about it? Uh, there's there's really not much that we can do uh, except use them as examples for my students uh, to emphasize the importance of, of critical thinking. And, and, it, and you know, it, it's just a, to me, it's just a raw exercise of power. The Supreme Court has the power to make these decisions. The Supreme Court was not going to allow either of these gentlemen, Mr. Singh or Mr. Thin, to become American citizens. They were not going to allow either of them to portray themselves as white. They defended the institution of whiteness, which you would expect Supreme Court justices in 1920 or even 2020. Uh, It's somewhat predictable that they would defend the institution of whiteness, even if it just amounts to an, uh, an exercise in, in sheer power. It is the way it is because we say that's what it is, um, and that's what it comes down to. All right. We have about three minutes left, Rick. Uh, yeah, Chris, uh, when and was it uh, uh, the decision on what is whiteness as the core uh, value, core requirement for citizenship, when was that reversed? Well, um, there are there are scholars of the court out there who know much more about it than me, and, and someone might be able to identify a particular case. Uh, but I think it's just um, I'm not sure that it ever has been reversed. Uh, for example, um, or if we look at our prison population, and, and this is an area in which I, I'm a little more informed, uh, the prison population, for every 100,000 white men in society, 327 of them are locked up in a state or federal prison. That doesn't count the jail population. But the rate of incarceration for white men is 327 
for every 100,000 white men in the population. For black men, the number is 1,807. And so by my math, that's roughly an incarceration rate that's six times higher for black men than it is for white men. So we still have these racial categories, maybe officially, um, you know, with the civil rights movement in the 60s, uh, maybe officially, you know, we can we can look at that and say, well, you know, there, there's been, you know, various civil rights acts passed. Um, uh, states, certain states have to get approval from the Department of Justice if they want to change uh, how they how they uh, register voters even though Congress repealed that law a few years ago. Um, so I'm not sure that it, that it ever changed in reality, even though with the advent of the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King and, and uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, white people today certainly know that they should ignore race um, when speaking in public. Uh, but as a as a white person with a white family that grew up in the South, I can certainly tell you that uh, the white people that I grew up around made a distinction about race when it was when it was just us. When in in mixed company, certainly we would never bring up anything like that. But there was a lot of racism uh, uh, expressed by my family as a kid growing up in the South. Chris, we have about a minute and a half left. We always give our guests the last word on the show. So uh, why do you think knowing about court cases like Thind and Ozawa is relevant in today's world? Well, um, I teach these kinds of cases to my students because I want them to be critical thinkers. I want them to uh, have the ability to look at something that an authority figure or a a legislator, a representative says, and be able to evaluate that and determine what's what's basically propaganda uh, from from what's actual truth. I think that's an important skill for all American voters, and and that is definitely what I try to instill in, in my students. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 400, excuse me, 547th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. and is written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Christopher Booker, Assistant Professor of Practice, Internship Coordinator, and Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Texas, San Antonio. 
and we've been talking about stare decisis, U.S. versus Ozawa and U.S. versus Thind. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Pusutu proverb, Hotsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.